We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. My guest today is Shane Tooze, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the president of uh, Logan Circle Strategies and a longtime friend who not only has deep knowledge, but also strong views on the subject of today's podcast, which is tech regulation. I just got off a call with a bunch of Europeans where I said that I didn't say what I usually say, which is this will be the year of tech regulation. I don't think it will be in the U.S., but I did say that digital governance, tech governance would shape the international agenda for the rest of the decade. What's your view on this? What do you think? I think we've got a, a president of France who's making it a really big deal so they can get it in their trilogue. So they, they're they're gunning over there. I'm, I, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at what they're doing in the, you know, the drug marketing academia. It has a lot of conflict with the GDPR. There, I mean, I do appreciate, and I, I one thing I hate, and I realize they're two separate things, but the GDPR and their cookie notice, their, their you know, the transatlantic portal of the cookie notice, I think has been horrible because it's one more piece of friction you don't need. But I do understand what they're trying to do by saying you should under, you should acknowledge as a consumer what you are, um, what are you're, you're giving to these these companies. And then they turn around in the DMA and say, but we want interoperability, which is a difficult task to do both of those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't, you, on one side, they're saying, you know, please be very cautious and only share this information in these limited, you know, scopes. And then they want you, then they want the tech companies who they're telling all this direction to to turn around and hand it over to anyone. And it's, it's not too dissimilar to what they're doing in the Klobuchar bill. And it, it I don't understand that it seems like cross purposes to me. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because people just don't understand how things actually work? I think that is absolutely correct. I, you know, I think that, um, and the other thing about this is that, you know, the data, as I call it data hoarding, you know, both of us have been working mm-hmm. in privacy in a long time. And and I don't really like to call it privacy because I think it's a misnomer. You know, privacy is a feeling. And- I, no, I like privacy as a historic artifact uh, because it's not, it's not about privacy anymore. One, you don't have any. Two- right. It's much bigger than PII. That, that, that is true. And, and people should be more cognizant about the, the data that they are sharing or you know, putting forward. So I, I'm all for that. And I'm actually for us having a federal privacy bill. I think that would be helpful. Um, I would- what do you think the chances are? I've given up predicting. I used to say every year that next year would be the year we'd get a privacy bill. So um, I, I think that the, it's, it, the privacy part is important, but the idea that data also ages out really quickly. So the data hoarding is a bigger issue by these companies, not only keeping all this information, but now possibly mandating that they share all this dated information is quite dangerous from a cybersecurity perspective. So that's that yin and yang that no, you can't have privacy without security. You really can't have security without some level of data protection. I'm not sure I call privacy. Uh, So I think that, that is a big challenge. Why do you think security's gotten what I would call short shrift in a lot of these uh, tech regulation efforts? 
I think it's another misunderstanding and we're seeing it on both sides of the pond. Um, you know, why do we want these tech companies lowering their guard around security? And we have so many cyber attacks that we've seen just in the last month, um, you know, and we saw them going into Christmas. But so the, the criminal behavior is at an all time high. And you think that we would be treating this like we do, um, you know, we just had those these meetings on climate change. And mm -hmm. the collective understanding that we need to strengthen, uh, you know, the whole thought process when you create something about how it's going to affect the climate. I think we need a very similar process around security that you think about everything that you put online, how it's treated, mm -hmm. how it's maintained, how it's regulated, how, you know, legal forces around it. And that should include all proposed legislation. I mean, that should be the starting point. And um, so I'm, I'm really surprised that, and I, I think, you saw several senators bring this up last uh, week in the Klobuchar. Yeah, at the hearing. Yeah. yeah, that they were just kind of surprised at how this was just disregarded as an issue when it had been brought up multiple times by the people that have to manage all this information. So if you were going to prioritize what you need to do with regulation, what, what would be on your hit list? Uh, data protection? Security. What? What's? What's your? What's your hit list for regulation? I'm huge on two things: transparency and accountability. I would say, if you are the devil, I'm going to believe you. <laughs> I kind of might want to meet you, but the idea is: tell me what you're going to do with this information. Be very transparent about it, and then I want accountability. And then depending on you know how you're using that information, you I, I may want there to be you know accountable rules. I, I think we've seen some of this uh, self governance that was started. With some of these companies that started to have challenges but nobody really takes the time to read them and, and i mean you and i do because they're kind of entertaining but uh they don't they, sometimes they don't do an apples to apples comparison year after year and so that makes it very challenging to say is this getting any better from a consumer perspective when it comes to these things the ftc is looking at playing a bigger role in fact the ftc might even come out with its own privacy rule what's your view on if accountability is a a good thing, which it is. Where does the F FTC fit in? This is red meat, I know, but we have to do this. Right. So I, I watched, uh, I've, I've been watching the FTC now that they've sort of adopted the same way that the FCC did um, under the GPI regime that, you know, they, they tell you ahead of time how they're going to manage this. I actually participated in the FTC open meeting around privacy, which was very interesting. I think that Chairwoman Khan, it does a great job. Um, she's very, she's very good. She's very camera ready. She's got her talking points. She's um, you know made for sound, as they, they used to say. So um, I think that that is, she's got an, a, an incredible strong agenda. And I wouldn't, I mean, I'm expecting the, and the administration seems to be adopting, you know, where she's going on this. I, I, am fine with our current rules around competition and you know consumer protection being first. I don't understand where they're headed on this, where they're having these kind of opaque ideas around technology that apply only to certain companies and not to others. Mm -hmm. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. It's kind of like you need a you need a same same rule across the board, no matter if you are digital native or if you are an analog company that became digital or a digital company that became analog. So picking on particular companies because of a certain part of it, as somebody who's been doing technology for a long time, I, I find that um, I, I find that unfair in the process. My my concern with that is that we know all these rules are going to be tested in court, and if you don't do it in an equitable fashion. Do you think that increases the risk that they won't survive that court review? 
think that is a uh, is definitely a problem. I mean, it's it's you know, there's all these different rules that you have to abide by, and these all these you know, every for years we've been dealing with Chevron deference, we've been dealing with all these different things that have to do with you know, what do you look at when you're trying to decide what regulations do you have to comply with. So I think being very clear about that and not picking winners and losers that only have to comply with some things and other people that get get a skate underneath that. And it's not only at the FTC, we're also seeing that in these competition bills that they're picking <clears throat> numbers and saying, here's a magic threshold. And if you're below it, you're fine. And if you're above it, you're in trouble. And right now, if you're below it, just by a hair, which would be Walmart and probably Target, they don't have to comply with all these same things that they're asking these digital native companies to do, which I find um, is very confusing to the consumer because they don't necessarily see the difference, especially when um, I just wrote a piece about how Walmart is now, they've, they've put a bunch of uh, patents out. They plan on getting in the metaverse. They're gonna create their own F NFTs. They want to have their own crypto, but they wanna do it in a fully closed loop. So they want the Walmart customer to come in, use the Walmart crypto for the NFT to buy them their virtual items. I can't wait to see what virtual items are on the Wall Street. I mean, Walmart. Three tries for a quarter. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm like, you know, the whole thing I find very fascinating. But at the same time, I think that they should be under the same rules as if I am an Amazon customer or if, you know, whatever I'm deciding to purchase off of. I don't, I don't see the, the reason to pick one over the other. Yeah. that um, So that you raised a lot of stuff and I want to come back to some of it. One of them is, Think about the internet of the past where we all used our Blackberries and got our email from Yahoo and did our shopping on eBay. What, what are the, what's the rate of change here? Or have the big guys now locked in permanent advantage? No, I think so. Um, I've been, you know, trying to figure out who's going to be the first one to really coin what does Web three mean because everybody's doing their best. And the one part I latch onto because I do, I find it very important is I think what has been missing since one slash two is authentication and encryption. Mm. And so that is a big deal with blockchain, right? So we, blockchain is basically saying we know who you are, even if we use some sort of, you know, disaggregated way of identifying mm. you. There, you're no longer a dog on the internet, right? You, you, you have to kind of identify yourself at a level. So um, I think that that's, if we're going to be doing much more of this dynamic digital commerce that is going to become the platform for everything and we're really kind of inverting. I mean, it's like, when, when was the last time you were an ATM? I mean, like, you know, it's, you, yeah, I, just, I know from a digital perspective and I'm a huge you know user of Venmo and PayPal and I occasionally do buy things on eBay, Jim, but um, they're, they're still awesome. But th that idea of you know, <laughs> you know I'm who sorry. With. Yeah, um, you know, I, some a friend of mine. They're the breakthrough technology of 2000. Well, you know, but but there's still a marketplace there. Okay. You know, I mean, it's still, especially you know, that's one. We should well, let's not divert onto eBay. Good. Okay. But I, right. People still use eBay. I mean, I'm not, but I'm just saying that if we if we design laws to uh, take eBay, uh, Yahoo. And the uh, the now late lamented BlackBerry, MySpace. I forgot about them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're like, going to add in Yahoo, and you got to go with MySpace. MySpace, yeah. So that, but that's I think the question is, we usually see an evolution where there, you know, people are market leaders for a decade, and then they're replaced. Is that going to happen again, or well, is Faga locked yeah. in control? Yeah, I think that that you know, it's just the innovative cycles that we're in. And the compute cycles means that you. I mean, one another point that I'm very concerned about with these pieces of legislation is the their 
pressure to not allow these bigger companies to do mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Most startups look to get acquired. I mean, that's that. I mean, not all of them, but a lot. You know, quite a few of them. That's their whole game forward mm-hmm. is something that then they can slide into one of the bigger platforms, and then maybe stay around in management for a bit, and then go off and innovate something else. So I feel like we're actually legislating behind the power curve per our usual, right? We're, we're behind on everything. And then we're going to try to crush these companies just in time for somebody who's you know, about ready to, to blossom anyway to come forward. The Europeans are deeply concerned with anti-competitiveness and with uh, tech. Now they have learned, I was talking to some this morning and they said uh, the American companies plus Tencent and Alibaba. So they're, they're, they're globalizing. That's good. Why okay. do you think Europe is so concerned about competitiveness? Because they don't have anything to compete with. Why do you think that is? I, I don't think it's, it just doesn't seem to be in their native way of doing business. I mean, I feel like, we, you know, we both know this, you much more than I, with China for so long, China did not innovate. They were happy to do all the work once the innovation cycle was, you know, was created. And that became very apparent to me when I was doing work back in like 2010, 11, I, I remember one of my engineers at the company I was working for came to me and said, the Chinese are, have shown up and are getting really active in the standards bodies. And I was like, well, haven't they always been active? I mean, they've always been making this stuff. And they said, no, they don't, they don't actually, you know, they don't make this, they, they don't make the rules. We tell them what the rules are. And then they go off and they, they create, you know, the pieces that become the component parts for hardware. And now we're starting to see them be much more aligned in like, in what eventually becomes the hardware software yin yang right and and now that that means they can create their entire whole ecosystem cycle without us which is part of the challenge i think we've seen with semiconductor chips that we sent in the last Mm. year so uh, you know and when it comes to europe i i don't know why they aren't more innovative and i'm all for it you know compete with us americans are competitive (laughs) we like that but don't compete with us by putting us under your thumb and telling us that you're going to just push us down what would you tell the Europeans to do if they wanted to change? And one of the things I've been holding up to them is uh, Israel. You know, they don't like they 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 have a bit of a complex about the United States, but you can say, hey, look, Israel, tiny country, fabulously innovative. Um, what can you learn from them? So, what would you tell the Europeans about becoming competitive? You may know more about this than I do, but it seems to be a uh, part of it is they don't have the venture capital capabilities and the, and the funding. And, and you know, Israel, I would think, doesn't have that issue. They're very innovative on all fronts, including you know, investment and banking. So um, that's always been you know, kind of a mystery to me why they don't want to invest in some of these companies unless they want more of a solid track record, which this, it, you know, it's the, you, know, you get nine failures, you get one amazing success. It's sort of what happens in the venture capital world. So um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why they don't see what we're doing and then, I mean, they and find a way into that path and, and then again, to compete with us in a, on a you know, level where we're all kind of winning, we're all getting better stuff. I mean, I, I, there are certain things I love. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a big, I'm a, I love to listen to music and Spotify as well as a bunch of others, but that's the only one that ever comes to mind. Yeah, Spotify is the big success story for Europe, but where is Spotify headquartered now? I believe they are, they're Swedish. <laughs> Still in Sweden. They were Swedish. I just wondered if they moved because that seems to be one of the there's a connection here, though, between data regulation, regulation, privacy regulation, and European innovation. And what's the right balance there? I mean, the part that when I look at this, so when I started doing this stuff, 
a long time ago. Europe had a tech industry, and then they had privacy regulations, and now they don't have a tech industry. I, right. I sometimes assert there is a connection. What would you do to get it right? So early on when I started doing privacy, as this was explained to me, this is back in like 2000, 2001, that um, you know, we, are, we are very quick to share our information as Americans. And one of the things that allows us to do is to have, have instant credit. And so therefore we are used to like you know, walking into Home Depot and saying, okay, I want to buy this entire set of, you know, of kitchen equipment. And they basically will finance it for you, but you give them, you give them your information. They allow financing, you know, you, you go on your way, or maybe it's a sweater or maybe it's, you know, it's, and, you know, we had a challenge for a while with them really targeting um, college kids. And so, you know, that's kind of gotten tidied up a little bit, but so I think in Europe, you know, the, the fact that you do have a challenge that without the information flow, you're not as capable of feeling that you could take on the risk of the, you know, bringing that much capital to people that you just don't know that much about. And I'm sure somebody understands that at a full another level that more than I do, but the whole concept of it makes perfect sense to me. You brought up the Klobuchar bill. There's a lot of bills now on the Hill to uh, regulate big tech. The latest, I think, was going after targeted advertising. What do you think has inspired Congress to get into the the debate? And then how much of this, I'll, why don't you answer the question, then I'll tell you a story. So I, I'm first, I'm just going to be very upfront that I love targeted advertising. When I get in my car, and occasionally when there's like a rainstorm, and I'm forced to listen to FM radio, and they are advertising mattresses or dog food, I think I have a perfectly lovely mattress, and I don't have a dog. So why do I want to listen to either one of those? Now, I do occasionally get tired of the things that chase me around on the internet. And I have to say, I've already bought that pair of boots at Neiman. So please stop advertising them to me, but they know I want them. And so I, I find it actually saves in ultimately time and cycles for me. It doesn't, it just doesn't bother me. I get how it happens. I don't know if we to go back, it just seems so inefficient. I mean, we, there are other things to think about. And I think that um, actually FCC Commissioner Carr has thought about, you know, when we go to how do we deal with broadband uh, funding and we keep, you know, we have, we have a kind of antiquated way that we manage through that is that one of the biggest users of the broad, you know, broadband for, the, you know, brings it to the consumers are these bigger tech companies and maybe doing something around targeted advertising from a, I don't, he hasn't really gone through how he wants the money to work on that. I asked that question several times to him and his staff is, you know, but I think it's an interesting point is, you know, if they're, if you're looking at it and there's a way to look at a financial mechanism to realize these guys are making a ton of money and it's all in ads. I mean, all of them, most of them. So, uh, you know, why, why not look at that from the perspective of, you know, if you think it's causing a harm, you know, maybe you need to manage it a different way. I, I don't think it's causing a harm, by the way. So um, this is another one of these ideas. People I was talking to today from the European governments were saying, here's another one, targeted advertising that we started and the Americans have picked up. Um, and that made me think, who's driving the agenda in tech regulation? Where does Congress get its ideas? Where, is it academics? Is it the Europeans? Who's, who's driving the agenda? I'm going to say politicians. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, really? with, well, yeah, I mean, look, we got Vesiger who's, who's very gunning on this stuff. Uh, you know, we've got the president of France is got a, a big election coming up and he's also, you know, working through the current um, regulatory system. He's made this a big issue in, in the French elections and, you know, showing that he's a power player. So it, it's, it, 
sound bites nicely. And that I think they've picked up from Americans. And that's an unfortunate thing that we have brought around the world. But look at, you know, Amy Klobuchar is running for higher office, as are several other people that have bills out there. I mean, this is just something that allows them to look like they're very consumer friendly. But if you actually look at the polls, consumers don't really care that much about the level, the things that are in these bills. They like that maybe some of the, the talking points, but if you actually dig down to what the regulation would do the, and you bring those forward to consumers, they're not happy about that. Why do you think that is that consumers don't care? Because I agree with you, consumers don't appear to care. And what what explains the disconnect here between the 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 unhappiness and the fact that in in real life people don't seem to pay attention i don't know why people have such a cognitive disconnect because you know i find that it's part of it's because i've worked in technology for so long i i actually or you know kind of think through these things pretty much in the if then what scenario that you do in it but it, it brings it's so much easier like self-preferencing this whole idea that self-preferencing is a terrible thing if you're you know i i know when i get on google maybe i need to scroll i look immediately and say add 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 and I'm looking for something specific. Now it can be slightly annoying, yes, but there's many things on the internet that are annoying. Eventually getting to the information I want by having to like push two or three things out of the way are, are not really that rough. I, I, cookie notices annoy me much more than that. That also, with when it comes to Amazon, the fact that they know pretty much what I want almost before I do, I love that. I just, you know, there was one moment where Google did have a program, it was a while ago, that they were, trying to predetermine what they thought you wanted and they'd send it to you and it freaked people out. They were like, mm -mm, no, that's, that's a little too much. So, you know, they realized they backed off and they actually got out of that business altogether. But, you know, Amazon has a ver version of that and that's what's in their Amazon warehouses. And this whole confusion about how and why you can be an Amazon Prime customer, it's because you've agreed to put your items in the warehouse to make them easy to deliver. And you're part of that, you know, supply chain that Amazon brings. So that is one of my rules of thumb for uh, tech issues in general, which is anything that looks like minority report probably will get you into trouble. So that's where the pre-shopping might be a dilemma. I, I'm a little more concerned about self-preferencing than you are, and here's why. So I'm, I'm your service provider, and I track what you do. And I see that you're selling you know, a special brand of dog food. And then I turn around and make a competing brand of dog food and offer it and put it ahead of yours is that and you hear that a lot from some of the services like travel restaurant reviews is that a concern for you that's so, different from self-preferencing it's, it's a it's, different flavor so we've been dealing with this forever in grocery stores right what look and see on the the caps at the, the end of the aisles those are the items that they want to promote the highest and that's usually because they're getting paid uh to preference those items. It, even when you go look at what's, what shelf things are items on, the people that that are allowed that better eye view are probably getting paid somewhere in the process. And so that's where they're there. But so that's one way of doing it. And then the other way is, you know, I, I drink giant, you know, sodas because it, it, it was like, I, I don't go to Costco because I don't have any storage. But all my friends go to Costco and I occasionally go to a Costco and, you know, they've got, everybody's like, who are the Kirkland golf balls made by? They're all excited about it. Like, it's like a big deal to figure out who's making the Kirkland bourbon or the Kirkland, you know, whatever it is. And that's, again, it's just, they, they have cut a deal and are bringing things to the market that make their particular customers very happy 
they love getting those curriculum products there. And that, so that's self-preferencing, you know, in a way that I don't understand that, you know, there's not one grocery store that doesn't self-preference drug stores do it too. So why this is again, not, it's a, it's a digital problem and not an analog problem. If it's a problem, it's a problem, but I don't think it's a problem. Yeah, that's really interesting because it is the grocery store example is uh, the counterpoint to the self-preferencing, which is exactly what you're talking about. There's a sense though that maybe people won't scroll down or that there's, I have a little bit of sympathy for some of the travel companies. One of the restaurant reservation systems. Now, when you type in a restaurant name, the first thing that pops up is Google wanting to make the reservation for you. I I wanna use the system I've always used. Well, the, I, uh, that is get awkward in that you are actually using that system, but they're not doing it on your account. And so if you like go to cancel it and you think, oh, but it's on that other system, it isn't. It's on the Google system that gets a little funky. Um, let's talk about security. Let's talk about some of the things we're going after on that. Yeah, I wanted to raise the issue of uh, apps, which is I, I love apps because they're a great delivery vehicle for malware. And my favorite story is still an app sold in the UK that was from a German developer who had subcontracted to North Korea. Wow. And those people in the UK who were downloading the app, it was for the royal weddings. This was a while ago. They didn't know they were installing North Korean software. But on the other hand, 30% for pricing. What's your take on the whole app battle? So I think of it as, um, you know, I do think that the the construct that at least Apple puts forward, Android's in a bit of a different situation and they do have more problems with their apps. Um, you know, that they do have to do a vetting process. And I think that's really smart because, you know, that's the gateway drug to, you know, your, your mobile device, mine's with me at all times. And so if somebody isn't helping me figure out what to put on there, all of my information flow on that device is now vulnerable. And I really have a concern about that. I try not to buy things off of Instagram between midnight and 6 a.m. because that's a bad idea, but I occasionally do. And I bought a, I didn't even, again, I didn't know I needed this, but they targeted me and it worked. Uh, I bought a label maker, which is really fun for probably a week. And then I'll probably just never use it again. But when I went to download the software because it's Bluetooth, of course it has to be Bluetooth because I have it in my hand and I couldn't actually connect it to my device. It Bluetooth. It immediately wanted to update. So I downloaded the app and it wanted to update, but I, I should have screenshot it. I swear it said firmware. And I was like, how can you do that? And you're just a label maker. And then I started to get really worried that this label maker was nothing but a Trojan horse. So, you know, there's all these levels when you work in cybersecurity that you worry about where do they, where's the point of presence that comes in? Well, I, I worry about that. So you download a lot of apps. Uh, it doesn't matter what they do. It could be a health app. It right. could be a navigation app. And the first thing they say is I want access to your content, your, your contact list. Yeah. And it's like, I'm using you to record how many steps I took. Why do you need my contact list? Why do they need my contact list? So I'm, I, I am a big uh, advocate of always updating your um, operating software. And so when Apple updated their OS, uh, I don't know, this, this winter, like December. December, now, I think. Yeah, so you now, it says like, this app is asking for information. And it's like, always allow, you know, sometimes allow, you can see these options. And every time, if you haven't used the app since that OS was updated, it asks you, and it's really interesting because at least every other day, it's asking me if it wants me to continue to allow this information on this app. And there are apps I had no idea had so much information flow that were coming off of them. So I think that's a real asset for consumers. I like that. 
What? You, I was going to ask you to explain why, uh, why they do that. You think it's an asset? Here's an, here's an example. So there's, and this is by, I mean, Moleskin, which is, you know, they make those beautiful little books. I know, yeah. Them, right? They also have apps and their whole idea is they try to bring the elegance of the Moleskin to the app. Good for them. Like, you know, so I fall for the marketing. And so I download time pages by Moleskin. And I got kind of annoyed with it when the first round I deleted it. And then they, up, they kind of taunted me by saying that they had upgraded it. So I upgraded it and it wanted information flow from all kinds of things that didn't make any sense for just, you know, having access to my calendar. And, you know, it's one thing if it's a Waze or it's a map and it needs, I, I'm asking, or Uber, like Uber needs to know where I am so you can find me. Like I get that. And some people don't make the connection on the, the geolocation. But the stuff that time, this particular app wanted didn't make any sense to me. And so I said, no, but before they upgraded this, I didn't know that it was doing it. And now at least I am cognizant of it. And then I can say no. And, and, and parts of the app will continue to work. I don't know which parts are not working because I've already disallowed it. So that gets back to your earlier point about transparency. Mm -hmm. that if you tell people, they at least give them a choice. Yes. I mean, like I, I'm looking at my phone right now. So I am a I have several WhatsApp groups. And one of the things that I allow is that any picture that somebody takes in a WhatsApp group goes immediately into my photos. And there are days I'm like, I know that wasn't me and what's going on, but it humors me to no end. But I know I can stop it at least. I know why it's happening. And, you know, some people just have no clue. I mean, they, they just, they're letting, you know, things happen on their phone and they just don't have any idea. They don't seem to have any governance over it. Mm. Yeah, that I think. I think most people don't realize they aren't actually in control of their mobile device. But I think this, the mobile device, this amazing computer that's in your hand all day long, we can do everything possible to protect the information on it. So you can be as permissive as you want to be, but you should have that as an option, not as the, it, the native way that the entire the default. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about is in the anti-competitiveness uh, space and in some of these other things, you, you don't have market disciplines, right? So uh, why is it a, a, an app store or a play store can charge so much? It's because they really don't have competition. So how would you get market competition into these things? And the, opening them up, I'm not a fan because of the security problems. But is there a way to get competition? Is there a way to get market dynamics? So I think part of it is because of the world that we live in. We know that sometimes people are very good at masquerading as something that, that and in this particular case, the Epic case brought this all to our attention. And at first you're like 30%, that seems like a lot. And we're only pointing out that Apple and then Google, oh, and Microsoft, mm. Microsoft's doing it. Now that Microsoft's getting heavily into the gaming you know, system, the one thing that they did with this most recent acquisition they're looking to do is they want more mobile, right? You know, they're, they're great on the, the gaming console. Yeah. But they really want to up their game on mobile. It, they're asking for 30%. So, you know, this is not like this is not across the board. If, it, if it's an issue as far as the cost, I think we need to, you know, look into the, the cost mechanism. And I think we just talked about that, that part of that is the security that they're bringing to the table by saying, we're making sure that we understand what's, what's going on before we do this. And that's, you know, that's part of the cost. Maybe if there were more competition by, you know, like we talked about with Europe and, you know, South Korea, it's always interesting to see what they're doing over there. They're getting very upset about it, but um, I, I don't know that it isn't to now, in that case, it isn't a trade barrier, right? They're, they don't want to see more American items coming on and they want to have a, a level of governance on both the, not only the price, but actually what's allowed in and they want more of their native products on, um, you know, on these platforms. So I, you know, like all things, you always got to get curious, like, is this a hidden tax? 
Is it uh, a regulation? You know, what are we doing with here? It seems to be there's a lot to it more than just a, a cost mechanism. How about a market for data? So the original business model of the internet was data for services, PII for services. Works really well. I was around when they made that decision and there is no alternative, right? At least there wasn't then. But there isn't a market for that data. You don't, consumers don't know, they're trading, but they don't know the value of the trade. So there are some groups, I'm going to go back to Web3, that are hoping that they will be able to flip this on their head. I don't know how well they're going to do, they're nascent. But the idea is that you can now bid for certain items and you utilize your information flow as part of, you know, how the process moves forward. It's all theory at this point, you know, so we don't, I can't say that any of it's, I've seen it work. I know that there's a lot of people that are, I think they're just candidly upset because they weren't um, earlier adopters in this space. I do like that they're bringing, again, as I mentioned, the authentication and encryption concept to it, because now you need to have a a better understanding of where the information flow is going. Um, I realized that um, the Cambridge Analytica thing was an eye-opening experience for everybody, and a lot of the initial hype got debunked. However, the whole idea of those third-party aggregators getting information flow that you don't know as a consumer is coming off, you know, you're sharing it with the first party, and then it gets sold and sold and sold again. I think that needs to be very transparent. That goes back to my point about transparency and accountability. So I don't, you know, if I'm giving stuff to Bergdorf's, I want to know that they're eventually selling, where are they selling that information to? I think, mm, yeah. And I can say yes to that. I can say, absolutely. I'd love to, you know, I mean, and usually you do have to say, uh, you know, in a lot of these websites that, um, you know, I will agree to allow you to sell information to the yeah. company, right? And we don't do that so much on mobile. So that's something that maybe, but again, if we could just get rid of cookies, get aside where we want the friction points on this. Well, the, the cookies, I'm, I'm going to do a one minute editorial which is when I was a child, the goal was that software reduced the number of steps you had to take to perform an action. And with all the stuff we're building in now for authentication and cookies, I wanted to get it down to one click, right? No, well, that, and now I mean, you have to do multiple clicks. That's really how Amazon got initially ahead in this game was, was mm-hmm. what, what the term of art is, but um, you know, it was the one step and they had your, yeah. your credit card information, they knew your billing information. And so that one click got me through, but then eventually their, the patent on that, you know, when mm. you know, hit that 18 year mark or whatever it is. And they, wow. um, and so now that's why you see shop Shopify emulates it, eBay has some version of that, that they do with PayPal. And it's to take that friction out. And I love that. Believe me, the one thing I would like to get rid of is passwords. I hate passwords. I think they're, they're, you know, <laughs> we know that, I mean, you know, depending on which security element you use on your devices, they're always telling me that, you know, where I've been my information's floating around. And so then you end up using all these different keychains. And that that to me is something that we should be able to fix. But as you and I've talked, this is a totally different conversation, is once we get to quantum, all that stuff's broken anyway. Yeah, I do want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I hope we can hit uh, AI and quantum. But on authentication, yes. uh, I was talking to people in the administration and I told them that authentication of identity was the third rail of the internet and that you touched it at your peril. Because so far people have been willing to, unwilling, or at least a vocal minority has been unwilling to allow stronger authentication. Do you think that's changing? I think people are more aware of it. I, you know, I, was, I worked at um, VeriSign a long time ago when we still had the authentication encryption side of the business. And we were one of the pioneers on two-factor authentication. 
And at the time, you know, it was this yin yang problem. We had this great solution and we didn't have a lot of adopters. And then the original mm -hmm. adopters became banks, but you had a threshold of how much money you needed in your account before they even cared to offer it to you, you know, because it was a friction point. And so they wanted you to understand the security mechanism. So if you didn't have like a hundred thousand dollars at the time and you're, you know, they weren't going to bother with you. So now two factor off is, is certainly much more available. People still don't really migrate towards it. And I think that is that problem, you know, we talked about earlier is understanding the importance of your data and being more protective of it. Is, is a vital element to, um, I, I think that the problems we're gonna see with all this data are, are still haven't really hit in the tidal wave that it's gonna happen when people realize that they've given all this information away and then you're gonna have to do something else to protect yourself. That sounds like a regulatory problem to me though. Of course, being a ex-bureaucrat, I would naturally think that, but here we have a solution, you don't wanna use it. It's good for the country, I'm gonna make you use it. This, no, this is, I think that it's, that's part of the innovation cycle is I'm hoping someone will finally figure out something that works. I know that um, I'm a big Apple user. They always want me to use my thumbprint. Unfortunately, I have very light fingerprints. Apparently I should be a cat burglar, but you know, my, my thumbprint doesn't work. And the other person who loves to tell me that is anytime I'm coming back in on, you know, the, the government and global services that are here, oh, yeah. go through, right? So that particular form factor doesn't work for me. But that doesn't mean that it might not work for 80% of the, you know, of everybody else and they should still have it. I'm just the one that has to pick something else. And I think that we just haven't gotten there yet. We need, whatever's the innovation in that space, we haven't hit that um, inflection point of ease of use that it also mm. led us to the importance. It's sort of a, we, we have so much to talk about and I don't want to keep you. So I'm going to, it's just this, when you were talking about the internet three or web three or whatever the heck it's called it how you would bid on things. I thought to myself, I don't want to be bidding. But a long time ago, I thought, you'll get to the point where we'll have software agents that will act for us. You know, they'll be, they'll be our proxy. And that sounds like a use case for AI to me. Yeah, well, think about like, if you've used Honey, if you are a big shopper or like, you know, I never buy something the first time I go in. I, I always like, I go and I look at it. I go off the website. I let yeah. it taste around for a while. Usually I don't, there's certain websites I can't, people are some from mail.com. I can't read, there are way too many ads, but you know, eventually the things that, and they'll, and it used to be free shipping, but now I already have that. When I said you have Shopify or these other things that, you know, part of the bargain with them is I let them monitor what I'm doing. They help me get a better price and they usually give me free shipping. And so, you know, that's an, that's an AI element of this that is very user-friendly to people that are big consumers. And we were talking beforehand about the uh, the Domino's story and how uh, AI has made the world of pizza much more efficient. I I love that story. It, you just like the whole idea, and it was add-ons, not necessarily just straight up pizza sales. I feel that way about you know before COVID, I never delivered. I, I love to go to restaurants. I'm a, I'm a huge foodie, so I never did takeout like I've been doing you know the last two mm -hmm. years. I, I, until December. I had never done the home delivery on groceries and I have no idea why I waited so long. It is so, I did actually, my delivery showed up at 7 a.m. this morning. So I'm a, I live close by a Whole Foods. That's usually my one reason to get out of you know, my place for a, a couple, like an hour. But I've realized one day I just, it was like, I was too busy. And I said, well, let me see what's on here. And, and you, I probably like most people buy 80 to 85, 90% of the same thing every time I walk in the store. I mean, I'm, I'm going to look at my produce, but you know, you have the, my order showed up and it's like, I had just been at the grocery store 
And it just that I didn't have to bother going to the grocery store and somebody brought it to my door. And I don't know why we would want to put any more friction in that. That is awesome. Uh, I'm not touching that one. But last topic. Uh, so one of the points that overshadows or lies behind a lot of the push for regulation is we are in a global competition. It's not a Cold War. It's not military. But we are in a competition with China. How does our effort to regulate technology affect that competition with China? This is a conversation that you and I have had throughout the years. There's a lot of confusion for the regular American individual who understands that we have a lot of threats around China. We're very concerned about the way the Chinese might be manipulating our systems. We use TikTok as an example. I do not have a TikTok app. Um, I have a younger sister who thinks it's the best thing in the world. She gets financial advice on it. I wouldn't recommend that. But um, she uh, really. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it's one of the Tell her I'm against it too. <laughs> She'll. I'm sure that'll make her. I, TikTok's great. I love it. Their algorithm is fabulous. It's it's addictive. But financial advice. I know. Well, see, but that's you know it's a spiral, right? You know. But so the whole idea of you know it's hard to to say you know where. Should you or shouldn't you care? And this earlier conversation we had about all the information flow that you were happy to give off to just any company. Now we're giving that to the Chinese. I'm a, I really believe that in the case of TikTok, they are just training their artificial intelligence on a bunch of crazy dance people. I mean, I don't know what they're learning, um, but you know they've got all these things that they they do all these channels, and we have a version of that too now with some of the things that are going on, but reels, I guess. But it's it, it's hard to tell what when and why it's important to be concerned or scared about that. And then the component parts that we get from China that we actually couldn't work without them. And, and it gets, we, I think we give some mm. real conflicting information there. But then the other thing going back to regulation, especially with Europe, is if you're tagging out American companies, you're just opening the door for these Chinese companies to come in. So you've got Alibaba and Tencent and, you know, and, you know, we haven't touched on Huawei because that's a different topic, but you know, so they're coming in because you're, you've said no to these American products. And so the Chinese are going to come in and flood that market. And that's that's a detriment to all of us that are trying to be in this competitive you know, democracy and, and making sure that, you know, our ultimate ideals are winning in this. But now we're going to cleave those off and say it's OK for the, the corporate, you know, the corporate capital, corporate capitalism is going to not get to play here. But corporate, you know, communism is. So is that an argument for national champions, if not for national champions, at least not dismantling, dismantling the current crop of national champions. And does that help us here? Of the Chinese national champions? Yeah, no, our national champions. So we, yeah, have, I, we have companies, so a national champion leading global role, and they're in the crosshairs here, deservedly so in some cases, I'd say. But do we feel that way about, I mean, we are number one on entertainment and, you know, like you think about Disney, like, you know, the world loves Disney, like, you, you know, it, and it's also, you know, all the MGM movies and, you know, the, the things, those are things we've been very good at, we're native at, you know, music, we, we tend to think, I mean, we are very good at music, but, you know, there are other places once you come out in the United States that are good at it as well. Um, when it comes to tech, yeah, I think that the idea of, of you know, keeping our tech companies under the, the thumb, under this idea of, you know, making sure there's enough competition for consumers is just allowing China to walk in and take much more market share. And I don't see the value to American companies as well as American consumers on that. Mm. Have we missed anything in this conversation? I, I think you're, we're gonna have to have further conversations on all these fun topics later, especially AI. <laughs> yeah, we need to come back to AI and quantum. 
quantum's a lot of fun and you know you can there's quantum as a service i don't know if you've seen that but uh you it's really cool i think ibm offers it but it's one it's as a service so it's like, you like can, early 5g that was just a marketing <laughs> yeah but it turns out that programming is really hard you're not going to be writing javascript to do quantum i'm sorry to say but it's pretty cool cool stuff but yes we will come back Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.